You're listening to a Garden City Chapel podcast by Dr. Robert Shaw. For a complete archive of podcasts, visit our website at www.gardencitychapel.com. Very good. Well, open your Bibles to uh, 2 Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter chapter 3. So much of the music this morning has really uh, just affirmed this passage. What Jenny just sang about, it is well with my soul, and just that whole idea about one day getting to see God face to face and to know then truly it's well with my soul. Peter is writing to a group of people who are being persecuted, and one of the greatest forms of persecution is not just physical persecution. Some persecution can come in the forms of more subtle mental discouragement. So let me read this passage for you. 2 Peter chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. This is now, beloved, the second letter I'm writing to you in which I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. Know this, first of all, that in the last days mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lust, and saying, Where is the promise of His coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. For when they maintain this, it escapes their notice, that by the word of God the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and by water, through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. But by His Word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like one day. The Lord is not slow about His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance." You know, we don't like hanging around negative people. Typically, you want to hang around people that are positive. You want people to walk into the room that bring a smile to your faith and kind of pump life into the room. You know the kind of people I'm talking about, though, that are the kind that when they walk in the room, it's like they suck all the air out of the room? They're just negative. My last church, there was a guy named Jerry, and I'll use his name because I've told him this to his face. On a bad day, Jerry had the gift of discouragement. You know, some people are just gifted at encouraging you. He had the gift of discouragement. He could always find something to say. If you were having a good day, he could end it right there. That was just Jerry. And if you ever noticed, some of these people also, not only can they be negative, but sometimes it seems like they know it all. You ever hang out with people like this? Don't, don't elbow anybody you're sitting near right now. Nobody like this in this room. But there's just some people that are just, they just, they kind of know it all. They, it seems like they've just got all the facts. The problem is sometimes their facts are inaccurate. I was standing on a tee box down at Kiowa Island a number of years ago playing golf with a group, and a, and a bird flew over. And we looked at the beauty of the bird, and one of the guys said, I wonder what kind of bird that was. And one of the other guys said, well, too bad so-and-so, and I won't name this guy's name. <laughs> too bad so-and-so's not here. And I said, oh, does he know about birds? And they said, no, but he'd have an answer for what kind that was. And another guy said, yeah, often wrong, but never in doubt. You know, these are the kind of people that don't let facts get in the way of a good story. Just they, they speak as if they are authorities on everything, and the things that they're authorities on end up discouraging you because they're wrong. That, that's the group of people 
that Peter's talking about. Peter has written back in chapter 2, we looked at last week, and, and completing chapter 2 is just a real negative ending about this group of people that were these false teachers that were telling people the wrong thing. And Peter twice in this passage refers to this group of believers that he's writing to. And this isn't just one church. If you go back and see who the, the cities are named that he writes to, this, this letter that he writes was intended to go to several churches. In fact, pretty much the known world of that time. And twice he says, Beloved. And you say, well, why, why does he say Beloved? It's because he loved these people dearly. He wasn't with them any longer. In fact, he was in jail when he writes this letter. Probably not very long after this, he would be put to death for the cause of Christ. And yet he loved these people so much. Parents, it would be like you as a parent going to pick your child up at school. And your, your trip was delayed and you couldn't get there quite on time. Somebody else came along and said, oh, your parents aren't coming. Uh, you need to go with me. You know, we'd be mad at an individual that did that. And that's really what had happened to this group of people. The, the believers in these areas were being told wrong things. They were being told, Jesus isn't coming back for you. He's been gone too long. You can't trust that. And so Peter writes this chapter 3 then. This week and next week we'll look at this issue of the return of Christ. In fact, he says, he starts off, this is the second letter I'm writing to you. Now, scholars have written books about what letter he's referring to. I think the obvious answer is he's referring to 1 Peter. There's two letters from Peter. There's a first one. There's a second one. And so he's written this first letter, and then some period of time later, he writes a second letter because he had more things that he wanted to say to them. And so he says, I'm stirring up by way of reminder your sincere mind. The word stir up means to arouse from sleep, or even in this case, maybe to disturb your complacency. He's saying, people, you're getting lulled into complacency. You've kind of fallen to sleep as a church. And so I'm trying to shake you to wake you. And I, I'm having to do this long distance. I'm having to do it through a letter. That's really tough. You know, it's easier to wake your children up, you know, by uh, rousing them from sleep. It would be a little tougher if you had to mail them something. You know, mine would never read it. So what he's simply saying is, I'm trying to stir up your sincere mind by way of Reminder, what's he saying? Listen, I know that your minds are sincere. I know that your minds are pure. I know that your minds have been renewed in Jesus Christ. In fact, the word sincere means to be judged by sunlight. In fact, in that day, they would, they would have these pots, and if the pots got a crack in it, you couldn't really sell them in the marketplace, but some unscrupulous people in the marketplace would try to sell them anyway, so they'd put wax on them. And the way that they would stamp on the bottom if it didn't have wax on the pot without wax, that was the word sincere, same word here. And so what you would do is if you went to the marketplace and picked up a pot, you'd just take it out in the sunlight. And after a while in the heat of the sunlight, if there was any wax there, it would start to melt. And so Peter's saying, I am trying to stir up this pure, unwaxed portion of your mind that hasn't been led astray. I'm trying to bring you back to the truth, the truth that you first believed in the very first place. And I'm doing this by way of reminder. Now, you can't remind somebody of something they didn't already know, right? So he's talking about the fact you've learned this, but people have come in and tried to say to you, hey, what you learned is not true. You, you don't need to bank on what you've learned. Let me tell you this new truth. Let me tell you the real truth. What, you, what these folks told you isn't right. What I'm telling you is right. And Peter's saying, no, wait a minute. Let me, let me rain on their, their little party here for a minute and tell you that what they're telling you is not right. Let me go back to the beginning of what you actually believed. Men and women, let me tell you, when somebody comes and tries to tell you a lie, 
The best way to combat a lie is with the facts, with the truth, not with your feeling. Because sometimes we'll play on your emotions. Sometimes people will play on your feelings. And so don't allow that to rule the day, but come back to what's really true. What did God really say? So he says, I'm, I'm bringing you back to these things, and two things that he brings them back to is words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets. He's basically saying, go back to the scripture that you have. Now, obviously, in the first century, the New Testament's being written, so they didn't have that. They had the Old Testament prophets. They had these promises of God throughout the Old Testament. They had these predictions of God and prophecies that were about the first coming of Christ and ultimately even the second coming of Christ. He says, let me remind you of those things. Don't believe the lie that you're hearing, this newfangled ideas that you're hearing, but let me take you back to the holy prophets. And then more importantly, let me take you back to the command of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, who, who you've heard about through your apostles. And what he's going to talk to them about ultimately is the return of Christ. And you're saying, well, how often is that mentioned in Scripture? 23 of the 27 books of the New Testament, 27 total books in the New Testament, 23 of them explicitly mention the return of Christ. Two others of them mention it by reference. There's only two books of the New Testament that don't mention it explicitly or refer to it. And so he's saying, hey, the, the apostles that you've been hearing from, they've been talking about this return of Christ. For you, of, you and I, we have the privilege of the New Testament that we can read about the prophecies, the promise of the return of Jesus Christ, that he is, he is coming back to claim his own. He's coming back for the believers. Not only are there in 23 of the 27 books explicit references, but out of 260 chapters in the whole, the whole New Testament, 260 chapters, there's nearly 300 references, explicit references to the return of Christ. And so he says, listen, let me just wake you a little bit here. Don't get lulled to sleep by the false teachers. Let me bring you back to the truth. And the truth is that Jesus Christ is coming back. In fact, when he says, let me remind you of the command of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, the two of the last commands that Jesus gave the church was this. One of them was, go tell other people about me. Take this message that you've heard to Judea and Jerusalem, Samaria, the uttermost parts of the world. So one command that we have as believers is, go tell other people about it. The other one he commands us over in Matthew is, be ready. Be ready for the return of Christ yourself. One of the ways we can help other people be ready is that we tell them about Jesus and his return. The way that we're ready is that we're living our lives in anticipation every day of his return. So those are things to remember. Then he comes in verse 3 and he says, let me talk about first things first. Know this first of all. Now, it's not that he has a list of ten things that he wants to tell them. The word first here means this is what you need to know if you don't know anything else. You ever heard people say this? If you don't get anything else, get this. This is chief among everything else you need to know. Know this first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come. What are the last days? That, that term is used throughout the New Testament, and it typically refers to the time since Jesus ascended into heaven and the time that he will return to claim the church. Those are called the last days. So we're living in the last days. So are they. And he's saying, in the last days, you need to know something. Mockers are going to come. People are going to come and make fun of what you believe. They're going to come and make fun of the promises of Christ. And don't get discouraged by them. No that they're coming. These mockers were people that were living their own self-indulgent lives. And the idea for them that there were going to be consequences to their self-indulgent lives, they didn't like that. So they made fun of it. They could not accept the fact that there was going to come a day when God was going to settle accounts. And so they made fun of that, and they used intimidation 
to intimidate Christians by calling them either silly or uninformed. So Peter is saying, listen, understand, that's going to that's gonna come, that's going to happen. Men and women, look at me. That's happening today. I thought a lot this week about the mockers of our day. Some of the things they say, and I made a little list. Let me just go through a few of them. I was born in 1959, so you can figure out about how old I am. June of 1959. In the 1960s, I was very young, but I remember seeing bumper stickers on the car that said, God is dead. Do you all remember that, any of you people that were of that age that you remember that kind of in the 60s the whole theme was god is dead what were they doing the, the world that didn't believe in god was trying to poke fun at christians and saying hey god's dead i guess they assumed that maybe he was alive for a while but he's powerless to do anything now god is dead now it's not that god's dead anymore they kind of they kind of live their life as if that's the truth but they look they say now god's powerless or god's unable to do anything about your life the mockers of the day poke fun at the bible and say that the Bible's not really true, or that Jesus really didn't say that. There's actually a group of theologians now that get together with their little colored marbles and vote over, over how much of the stuff in the New Testament was actually said by Jesus. And, and it, just so enough of them put like a little red marble in there, then they'll say, okay, it must have been by Jesus. Like, who do these people think they are? They're trying to poke holes in Scripture. Mockers today say things like, you know, creation really didn't happen the way that it's talked about in the bible and you know one, one of the things i've been watching lately is the truth project i recommend that to you i've also studied some other evidences or uh, or other talks about creation and how it all happened and there's some people if you saw the movie expelled that came out not too long ago one of the things that amazed me in the movie is there's there's this group of scientists that cannot receive the fact that god created the heavens and the earth and so they've come up with these other solutions and the fact that they can't receive that, they say, well, you know, maybe it was something like the Big Bang Theory, or maybe it was an outside agency. Maybe it was aliens that came on the planet and kind of planted seeds on this planet that everything grew up out of that. And I'm thinking, so in other words, you can't take God's word for it. You can't take the Bible's word for it. So you've got to come up with something. So your best answer is that extraterrestrials came here? Wow. <laughs> That's amazing. But mockers will come. They'll say things like the flood didn't happen, Jesus isn't returning. There's no ultimate standards. One of the ways, one of the things the mockers do now is they look at us as believers and say, you know, you try to abide by this book. But let me just tell you something. I, I kind of believe that whatever's right for me is okay and whatever's right for you is okay. What are they doing? They're basically saying, I'm God. I kind of make up the rules for my life and just so you don't encroach on me and I won't encroach on you, you can believe whatever you want to. Mockers will come. There's no heaven or hell. One of the things they say now is, well, you know, a loving God is not going to punish people. You know, the truth about that is a loving God has made a way that you don't have to be punished. A loving God has created a place called heaven and a place where we can spend eternity with him. I remember Phil Donahue. Some of you older people remember him. Fortunately, the younger people don't know who I'm talking about. That's a good thing. I remember one day talking about heaven or hell, and he says, you know, I think it's going to go down like this. I think God's going to look at the world and just kind of go, come on. You know, basically discounting and making fun of what's in the Scripture. That, yeah, there's going to be a dividing day where God's going to say to the people on one side, you believed in me, you were my followers, you trusted Christ as your Lord and Savior. Come on into heaven. But men and women, the sad news is he's going to look at others and say, depart from me for I never knew you. And yet mockers today make fun of that. He said they follow after their own lust. And here's the question they ask. Where's the promise of his coming? 
back in the, even the day of Peter, they were looking at people that were placing their faith in Christ and saying, you know what, just as we saw him ascend into heaven, the angels told us he's coming in the same way. And these mockers were saying, he, he's not coming. If he was coming, he'd come by now. Listen, we as, as mortals cannot place our timetable upon God. And we'll talk a little bit more about that in a minute. But he's basically saying, these mockers are going to say, listen, ever since the fathers fell asleep, everything has continued just as it is. See, they're banking their entire existence on the fact that everything's going to stay the same. And what Peter's saying is, it's escaped their notice that not only will it not stay the same, but it hasn't stayed the same. It's not the same. Since the time that God has created the earth, there have been times that He has intervened in the course of human history. In fact, when it, the word that He uses is it escapes their notice means this. It means they are willingly ignorant of the facts. My wife and I have been married for 27 years. Obviously, we dated right before that. And uh, she had a sister that anytime something came on television she didn't want to see, either it was scary or something she just didn't want to see, she'd stick her fingers in her ears and close her eyes and start going, nah, 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 you know, so that she couldn't hear what was on. It kind of looks like this. Do we have a picture of that, Mike? There you go. <laughs> That's what it means to be willingly ignorant of. He, these false teachers that he's talking about have basically said, you know, Speak no evil, see no evil, hear no evil. You know, For them to understand that, hey, there's coming a day of judgment. There's coming a day when Christ is going to settle accounts. They just kind of want to act like these. Speak no evil, see no evil, hear no evil. Just stick your fingers in your ears. It escapes their notice. By the word of God, the heavens existed. Nine times in Genesis 1, it says that God spoke and it was created. That escapes their notice. It also escapes their notice that God destroyed the world at that time in the days of Noah. It escapes their notice. I mentioned this last week, so I won't go into a lot of detail of that, but folks, there were mockers in Noah's day. It took 120 years from the promise to the time the rains came, and I guarantee you people were saying, it's not going to rain. We don't need to get on the ark. We don't need to believe in this God you're talking about. God's not going to do that. Mocking took place then, and it was just for 120 years. Now it's been almost 2,000 years. And the mockers look at the time gap and say, he's not coming. If he was coming, he'd have come by now. And he says, you know, the good thing is the Lord promised after the flood that he would never destroy the world again by flood. But he didn't promise he wouldn't destroy the world again. In fact, there's coming a day when the world will be, be destroyed by fire. In fact, he said the world now is reserved for final judgment of fire. In fact, if you want to look a little into next week's passage in verse 12, of chapter 3 looking for and hastening the coming of the day of, of God because which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat and we'll talk more about that next week but basically what Peter's saying is it escapes their notice that everything hadn't stayed the way it was what's happened God sent a flood to destroy the evilness of mankind of that day he saved eight people out of that flood and, and started over with humanity it's escaped their notice that Jesus Christ came to earth in, in the perfect timing of God. Jesus Christ came to earth and changed the events of history, provided a way for man to be forgiven, paid the ultimate sacrifice for your sin. But the, the earth is being kept now for a day of judgment, the destruction, the ruin or loss of the ungodly. About three times in this passage, he's going to use that word destruction, and it's that word that means to be utterly ruined or destroyed. It's the word that you see in John 3.16, it's the word perish. What do we know about God? 
John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whosoever believes in him would not be destroyed utterly and fully, would not perish but have everlasting life. And yet for those that have rejected him, that's what awaits them. So then let's look lastly at the Lord's promise. We've seen kind of what the mode of operation is of these that don't trust in God. We've seen what their attitude towards the return of Christ is. But then Peter writes about the fact that, you know what, there may be some of you that are kind of thinking it has been a long time. Paul writes over in First or Second Thessalonians, he talks about some of you are worried about friends of yours that have gone on and died, and you're kind of thinking, you know what, Jesus promised that he's coming back, and yet these people were believers, and they died in Christ, so what about them? And, and Paul says, you know what, they haven't missed out on anything. In fact, when Christ comes back, the dead in Christ will rise first, and then we who remain will be joined and meet together with them. And so don't be discouraged. Don't worry about the slowness as it appears. And so he's talked about something escaping their notice in verse 8. He says, do not let this one fact escape your notice. Forget about the they's that are saying this. Let me come back to you as believers. And Peter says, don't let this escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like one day. He's quoting Psalms 90, verse 4, that says this, For a thousand years in your sight are like yesterday when it passes by, or as a watch in the night. See, you and I are so limited by time. You know, some folks are already looking at their watch thinking, what what time's lunch? (laughs) Let's hurry up and get out of here. Is he ever going to be quiet? Then you look at something even longer than that and think it's been almost 2,000 years since Christ ascended and promised that he's coming back. In God's economy, that's only a couple days. And yet it's been 2,000 years. In fact, God is not slow. God's not delayed. God is not loitering. That's literally what the word means. It's kind of this idea of just kind of standing around doing nothing, just loitering. God's not doing that. God hasn't gone to sleep. God hasn't gone inactive. He's not hibernating. God's very active on planet Earth. He's very active in your life now. And the slowness is not about His delay. It's more about His purpose. God has a purpose, and that purpose is to see you come to know Jesus Christ, to see others come to know Jesus Christ. It's not that he's slow. It's not that he's unable. It's that God so loves the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. You see, the truth is not that he's slow, but God is patient. In fact, the word used for patient here is two words. It's one word, large, and the other word, great anger. It means that he's merged those together. His great anger has been withheld. He's patient, not ready to pour out wrath upon mankind, but wanting desperately to pour out mercy. He's not willing for any to perish. There's that word again, third time in the passage. Not willing that any would be destroyed utterly and fully, but that all would come to repentance. All to come means to make room for. The last word we'll look at this morning is repentance. Men and women, what he's saying is God is not delaying because he's unable or inactive. God is waiting because he is holding back coming so that you could know Christ, so that all could come to repentance. The word repentance in the Old Testament meant to change direction. It means you were heading in one direction, you repented, you came back and you're heading in a different direction. Now, don't mistake that. I've heard a lot of teenage testimonies. You know, went off to youth camp, God got a hold of my life, turned my life around 360 degrees. What does that mean? It means you were walking away from God. He turned your life away around. You're still walking away from God. 
That's not what it means. It doesn't mean 360 degrees. It means 180 degrees. It means you were heading this direction, and God is waiting. He's giving you time so that you could stop walking away from Him and return to Him. Turn and come back to a God that loves you. In the New Testament, it means something very similar. It means a change of mind resulting in action. That's what the word repentance means. It means that you're living a life away from God. It means that you're living a life of sin. It means, just like these false teachers, they're living a life of self-indulgence where they're the center of the universe. And the reason that God is waiting, the reason that God has been patient, is because He loves you enough that He wants you to stop living that kind of life, a life that's ultimately destructive. He wants you to repent, to turn, to have a change of mind resulting in action. And He wants you to come back to Him. So my question is, have you done that? So we can look at these false teachers that are mocking God and living self-indulgent lives. I doubt there's any like that in here that are intentionally mocking God. But look at your life. Are you living your life in a way that basically says Jesus is never coming back? Or are you living your life in a way that says, you know what, one day I'm going to see him face to face. And so I want to be living my life today in anticipation of that day. Let's pray together. Bow your heads with me. Father.